everybody, and welcome back to the show. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. I really do appreciate it. So today is September 7th, and we are 2021, and I am coming to you live from lovely Los Angeles, California. Go Dodgers! But you're listening to Season 3, and this is Episode 7 of the History of Religions, and of course, they're gods! Woo! Now let me guess, you're probably still recovering from last week's tickles, aren't you? You can tell me. Are your taints getting numb? I can tell you that mine is. But enough of that. Hey, I'm your host, the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an amateur ancient history enthusiast, as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and, of course, their origins. And I, too, am a student with the desire to find the absolute truth. So this show, what is it? It's a result of a five-year study, as well as an 800-page essay, which some of you have already read. It's in circulation out there somewhere. Many different versions, I know. My, my apologies. But it is a living essay. We've all talked about that. But also, this show is a compilation of essays, papers, research material from leading scholars and professors all around the world, as well as some authors of some very popular books on this subject, as my favorite mythicist Richard Carrier, as well as Harari and Bart Ehrman, and many more. So the scope of this show is to analyze and compare history through the scope of archaeology, basic logic, literature, and comparing it to biblical accounts found in the Old as well as the New Testament. And it's interesting to see what people hold as absolute truths from the Bible or even the Quran once we examine the evidence side by side under a very, very bright telescope or microscope. But at the end of the day, that's for you to decide. I'm just simply laying out the evidence. But this episode today is entitled Hidden Christian Heresies. Hidden Christian Heresies. So in this episode, we're going to review Bart Ehrman's Lost Christianities. So see what I did there? So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But this subject plays very well into what we've already been discussing over the past several weeks, as we've seen the evolution of the ideas of how the earliest Christians imagined, excuse me, imagined Jesus all the way up through the second and even into the third centuries, and all of the different nuances. Now, even in the eyes of major church fathers, as we saw in one Clement, who imagined a celestial messiah as opposed to an earthly one in most of his writings, the authentic ones anyway. So we literally have a history of a Jewish warrior to a rebellious leader or leaders to a celestial pacifist to a humanized demigod man that condemned the Jews and took side with the Romans. Now that's some evolution, right? But we also have some other texts that were lost, destroyed, even some were hidden away for safekeeping, only to be found not too long ago, roughly around 1600 years later, buried deep in the desert in earthenware, as well as some tombs and some random caves. So these discoveries have revealed just how divergent the religion was and in its teachings. And we will take a look at these Gospels, and these Acts, and these Apocalypses to see what these congregations believed were sacred to them. Then we will also see what church fathers did in an attempt to destroy them, and why. So thank you for listening, and please share this with a friend if you think that they would enjoy this show as well as this topic as well, and help spread that love. But this show, it's completely commercial-free. 
and it's available on almost every single podcast platform. So share it with everybody. Share it with your friends. You're going to be able to find it. So if you give me an hour, folks, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So if you're ready for this excellent adventure to begin, hop in, tune in. Hey, and let's go see what these apocalyptic Jesus writers are talking about anyway. And so... I hope that we can come back soon and talk about it. But before we get move on, moving on to these lost Christian heresies, I want to talk a little bit about something else as we transition into that. And we're going to talk about Jesus' doomsday prophecies. Before we move into the lost Christian heresies, I want to start talking about Mark chapter 13 specifically and Jesus' doomsday prophecies. Now, I think it's important because it is going to tie together a little bit of what we talked about in the last several handfuls of episodes regarding the evolution of Jesus that we have today, right? So starting off with the messianic movements, plural, with multiple messiahs, multiple Christos and Christus and Christ and even Yeshua's and Jesus's, we can see the evolution of this character being developed into from what would be a Jewish rebellious leader or leaders and then moving into a celestial demigod into becoming a humanized demigod and then even into the what we're going to be really focusing on in this episode is the transition and the embellishment of this particular character and how he almost becomes a celestial being in combination with a um, humanized being so it's really interesting to see how the character had evolved and what the church fathers had to do to kind of you know ring it all in you know bring it all in together and you know try to unify it the best that they could and try to shut down all the other sectarian groups so I want to really focus in on this maybe next 10-15 minutes. I want to talk about the doomsday prophecies and how they apply to what we just discussed already. So let's begin with the prediction of the destruction of the temple. And it's found in Mark 13, verse 2. And I'll begin the quote. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied. Jesus acknowledges their greatness but predicts that not one stone will be left on another. Every single one will be thrown down. End of that quote. And this is the last reference made by Jesus to the temple in Mark's narrative. And Jesus seems to anticipate that it will be destroyed, that the temple will be destroyed and leveled and brought low. Although he does not say when, and he does not say how. Now, I use Mark as the example here because he wrote first. And the rest are all embellishments, as we talked about before, of Mark. Mark writing sometime around 78, 79. Matthew sometime around 85. Luke sometime around 90. Then John between 95 and 110. So the temple was in fact destroyed in the year 70 by Titus, Caesar of Rome, under the direction of his father, Vespasian, who had been fighting a rebellion with Messianic Jews for four years already. We've been talking about this, right? So here's the problem that we encounter when we want to try to believe that this passage was in fact a prophecy or a prediction by Jesus some 40 years earlier, right, in biblical history. Because Mark is writing in the late 70s, sometime between 78 and 80 of the Common Era. 
So in other words, this author clearly is aware that the temple has been destroyed and no stone is left on another. We also know that Mark wrote this so late because he pulls so many several narratives and even characters from Josephus' accounts about the war and the destruction of the temple, which wasn't released until sometime around 76 of the Common Era. So this is not a prediction at all. However, what he does do that is very interesting is that he backdates the story 40 years for Jesus' crucifixion narrative to the time of Tiberius in the year 30. Then has the temple go down 40 years in 70, right? So most scholars believe that Mark employed the 40-year backdating, or the 40-year cycle, to represent the Jewish 40 years of wandering, wandering in the wilderness, right, until they were free of sin. So the 40 years was a cycle of time for the Jews that represented, get this, probation, or trial, or, or, chet, or chastisement. Additionally, Mark knew that in Jewish tradition, the number four and the number ten carry the meaning of creation of something, which is the number four, and then the prediction and completeness of, no, no, of something is represented by the number ten. So in other words, this backdating represents Jesus' crucifixion as the creation of something that would lead to the completeness of something else, such as the destruction of the temple, and the elimination and the completeness of the Jewish rebels. And then the narrative continues, where Jesus then returns to the Mount of Olives. Mark says that Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately, as he was sitting opposite the temple on the mountain, and they said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And so Jesus replies with this, found in verses 5 through 8. And I quote, Take heed, or be aware, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must need to happen. But the end shall not be for you. For nations shall rise up against nations, and kingdoms against kingdoms, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. So this is pretty good. So let's pick this one apart. Because number one, the beware of others claiming to be Christ, trying to deceive many, is really important. We just talked about this with respect to John, Simon, and Judah of the rebellion. And this even confirms what I just said in the last handful of episodes, that they were, in fact, being referred to as Christ, or Christus, or even Christos. Mark just confirmed it for us right here, right now. Right? So when we see Suetonius, or Pliny, or Tacitus referring to these, these Messianic Jews referring to a Christ... You don't need to look any further. So please refer back to the episode regarding Suetonius, episode 6, where I make this argument. Now remember, these guys were Messianic Jews who appeared in 66 on the scene until they were killed in 70, and then, and then Judah, who was murdered in 73 by Titus. So now number two, 
that Christians may hear rumors about war and that it needs to happen, but the end shall not be yet. So Mark is clearly again talking about the wars of the Jews, documented by Josephus. And it further supports my argument that the Jewish rebels were, in fact, spreading rumors that they were going to revolt against their Roman leaders, other Roman masters, which we also talked about in Suetonius's um, Lives of the Caesars in Nero 16. But once again, this had already happened, and Mark is making a point that the Jews will suffer, but Christians should not be troubled by it. At least those Christians reading in the 80s when they're, you know, reading Mark's work. So this is Mark's way of telling Christians that the wicked generation of Jews who rebelled against Rome were cursed by God. And that Christ was the correct Messiah. This is key. The, that Mark's Christ was the correct Messiah and the only way to get to the Father and the only way to achieve salvation. And that was, and it wasn't their time yet. So this is a key verse that makes Christians believe that Jesus will return. So the last part of this piece is a nation will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdoms. Now this is more than likely Mark referring to the kingdom of Judah, the temple, and the Roman Empire. I think simplistically saying that the Jewish nation against the pagan nation then the last line about earthquakes and famine, quite literally, the fall of the Jewish temple and the city walls. The famine was the result of Titus cutting the food and water supply off from the city, causing a starvation, dehydration disease, and even cannibalism. Now again, obviously as this has happened when Mark writes, right, this is no prediction, it's already happened, he knows all the gory details especially about the cannibalism and the, you know, the famine, because he read the wars of the Jews. So the most troubling thing here that he writes, and he pretends that it is prophecy, is the very last statement. After these things happen, these are the beginning of sorrows. So knowing full well what went down, these historical events about the temple and the aftermath, what exactly did it mean by beginning of sorrows? He's making this up. So what did he mean? So let's think about it. Because immediately after the fall of the temple in 70, the rebel leaders John and Simon were arrested. Simon was killed by crucifixion. And Simon was indeed referred to as Christ by the rebels. We just talked about it. It was confirmed. And John went to prison forever. Now, was that the beginning of sorrows? Or was it the leader of the fourth philosophy, Judah, who Titus killed in Mazda in 73, three years later. Was that the beginning of sorrows? Or was it from the moment of the destruction of the temple to the destruction of the Jews in general that he meant? Was he aware of the fallout that would happen to the Jews when he wrote his gospel, leading up to Martin Luther all the way up to Adolf Hitler? I don't think he knew about the magnitude of it leading up to the Holocaust. But I do think that he really wanted to scare any Jewish rebellion from ever happening again. And we see this in everything that he has said so far. Now, verses 9 through 13, Jesus then predicts that they, or his congregations, or his disciples, will be harassed, beaten by various councils and synagogues, rulers and kings, and that they are to say whatever comes to mind, 
as it will be God speaking through them, and that Jesus' message will be given to every nation. But families will be torn apart, and that all men will hate you because of me, Jesus Christ. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, this last piece here is what Mark says should be expected of Christian discipleship in congregations during his time in the 80s, and that they should fear Jews specifically, as they were wicked. They were the wicked generation that brought the temple low, and that they were the demonic, the demonic that he describes in the demonic of Gadara, as well as Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan, otherwise known as the Jews. Then you can see in the last few sentences, be prepared to leave your family if they don't support you. And that even if a Roman leader persecutes you, everything will be okay because you will be saved in the end. And that they will burn for eternity. So basically, Mark is preparing his readers for circumstances that was happening in his time. Men literally dropping everything and leaving their families for the cult, which tore families apart, or being prepared to be abused or criticized by other Christian sects as com competition grew within the Messianic movement. He even prepares them for retribution from Titus as well as the Caesars to come. Then for the last prophecy, and please think about what Mark means here by his words as I read them. And we're in verses 14 to 23. So Jesus then predicts a disastrous event would take place in Judea. Again, when Mark writes, it's already happened, and he read the entire wars of the Jews. But he's placing this thing back that 40-year cycle, right? Which has Jesus crucified in the 30s under Tiberius. So just so everyone understands that reality, right? So here's the quotation. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to his house to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant, for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter, because those will be the days of distress equaled from the beginning, when God created the world, until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were even possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Chapter, or, uh, chapter 13, verses 14 to 23. So this, once again, is very interesting, and it reveals something to us, just how influential John, 
Simon and Judah were in rounding up fighters under the guise of Christ. Christus. Christos. Because they all were. And this is happening in Mark's day and fairly recent. And Josephus writes about it thoroughly. Mark read it end to end, over and over again, probably several times. And he is making it very clear that his Jesus, who is now gone, remember crucified, 40 years earlier, into the 30s, under the time of Tiberius, was the only Christ, the real Jesus, the real Son of God, and there could be no other. Just impostors that will do what? Make you fight in a war against the Roman oppressors. Now, I think, I think that's really strange. Who was, it? Who was this Mark guy again? What were his motivations? To hopefully secure no more Jewish leaders that would rise up against the Roman Empire. And to also secure for the future to not trust any Jews who do not follow Mark's Christ, his Christ. Right? And he definitely did that indeed. Now in conclusion, in Mark 15, 29, Jesus is mocked as having claimed that he would destroy the temple and rise it again in three days. A statement of Jesus that Mark does not record in the narrative, although he is falsely accused of claiming that he would destroy the man-made temple and replace it in three days, as seen in 1457. But this is the innovation from Paul, that Jesus would replace the temple cult and become the temple in the flesh. His crucifixion is, crucifixion is symbolic, guys, of the destruction of the temple and the separation of God and the Jews, the separation of the covenant. And then the resurrection happening in three days, which is symbolic of the new life, as seen in the Genesis myth, uh, creation myth, as well as Jonah and the belly of the whale story. The gospel, Jesus was the Pauline Christ, but on steroids and loaded with intention, probably based on control, power, as well as fear. And then basically, at the end here, Mark leaves us with a couple of parables. And one specifically, he refers to the withering fig tree. Now, you all hopefully remember this one from Sunday school, because Mark basically has Jesus, he's hungry, right? He's like, his stomach's growling, and he comes up across this fig tree. But it's not producing any figs. Now think about it, because this is all metaphor. And then he goes on, and he goes to the temple, and he starts getting pissed, and he starts, you know, he's mad at the elite Jews, right? Calling them bandits, calling, calling them robbers, accusing them of not being there for worship, but being there for, you know, greed and wealth. And he starts flipping over tables. And then he circles back and he's still hungry, right? They didn't have any hot dogs at the temple, in the temple court. And he makes his way back to the tree. And he, and he had condemned it for not producing any fruit. And it had withered away. Anyway, that's basically the story. So what he did is he tied together the fig tree, represented the second temple, ran by the Sidusi cult, if we call, made his way over into the temple cult, and obviously accused everybody of being robbers, accusing the Jews of being robbers and thieves, right? You get that. Only to come back and see that the tree is dead and no longer, you know, living. Or not, so not just, not producing fruit, but the tree's dead. So I think it's very symbolic what Mark was trying to convey there. So he also goes on with some quotes about being ready as Jesus can come at any moment and that you should be vigilant, you should be ready. But you know, or you will know when he comes, because the sky will do what? The sky will go dark. 
The moon will no longer shine. The stars will fall from the sky. And much more like that kind of, you know, theatrics. So clearly stuff that guys like John, Simon, and Judah could no way do. They couldn't perform that kind of magic. So forever we wait. And while we wait, don't listen to anyone trying to claim that they are the Messiah. That they are claiming to be Jesus. That they are claiming to be Christ or Christus or Christos. Because Mark's Jesus is the real Jesus and the only Jesus. And the only way to get to the Father is through this Jesus, who supposedly died 40 years before, but we're writing about it now. We've probably spent the last two seasons dissecting the evolution of this religion, of Christianity, and its leader, Jesus Christ. And as we talked about in the opening statements of the podcast, we've watched it evolve from the earliest messianic texts, from that of Daniel and Isaiah, Wisdom of Solomon, Psalms, what have you. And we've seen this character grow from a messianic Jewish leader that would lead the Jews in a fight against their oppressors. You know, being the Seleucid Empire at the time, and then understood as the Roman Empire at the time, and it'll keep changing as history continues to evolve and present new challenges to the religion. But the evolution of this particular Messiah that we get from the Messianic texts, that we get from Paul, the Pauline letters, and his celestial being that comes to us in only in dreams, comes to us only in visions, or to Paul, Peter, and James, that is, anyway. I, I, I never got to see him. And then, as we see, going into the humanizing sect, the four canonized Gospels, where he was mythicized or, or humanized, taking on the blood and the flesh, the flesh. So what else were there? Were there other forms of Christianity that were also being practiced? And what did they believe in? And for example, Paul, I'm sure, probably wrote a lot more letters than what we've got. He had to have been for the time that he spent in the religion to the point that he died. But we no longer have those texts either. But with recent discoveries, new access to information, we in fact know for a fact that this is true. Early Christians wrote consistently throughout the second and well into the third and fourth centuries, and 200 years before the New Testament was even compiled into a single book. Not just these loose-leaf literature that was passed around in early congregations of the 1st and 2nd century. But in the 2nd century and the 3rd centuries, preachers would literally read the Gospels independently of each other and in their own pamphlet form. You can see this. They weren't in a hardcover book. But they also preached other Gospels as well. Other Acts. Other Apocalypses. And, and all forged in earlier Apostles' names. So let's take a closer look at these forgeries and these Gospels and these Acts. Let's find out what the non-Orthodox Christianities were thinking, preaching, and proselytizing. And what did they hold dear to their hearts? In fact, the wide diversity of early Christianity may be seen above all in the theological beliefs that were embraced by people who understood themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. In the 2nd and 3rd centuries, there were, of course, some Christians who believed in one God, 
But there were others who also insisted that there were two. Some who said that there were 30, and others who claimed that there were 365. But in the second and third centuries, there were Christians who believed that God had created the world, but others believed that the world had been created by a subordinate or a lower level ignorant deity. And why else in the world, why else would the world be filled with so much misery and hardship and pain, and disease and famine? Yet other Christians thought it was worse than that, that this world was a cosmic mistake created by a, a malevolent deity or divinity. And, and, and perhaps it was a place of imprisonment and punishment to trap humans and then subject them to pain and suffering. And in the second and third centuries, there were Christians who believed that the Jewish scripture, the Christian Old Testament, was inspired by the one true God. While others believed it was inspired by the God of the Jews, who was not the one true God. Others believed it was inspired by an evil deity. Others believed it was not inspired at all. There were also Christians who believed that Jesus was both divine and human. Basically a God-man, right? And there were other Christians who argued that he was completely divine and not human at all, such as Paul and the, uh, and the writers of Hebrews. For them, divinity and humanity were incommensurate. They were incommensurate entities. God can no more be a man than a man can be a rock. It simply did not make sense to them. And then there were others who insisted that Jesus was a full flesh and blood human, adopted by God to be his son, but not himself divine. And then there were yet other Christians who claimed that Jesus Christ was two things. A full flesh and blood human, Jesus, and a fully divine being, Christ, who had temporarily inhabited this human Jesus' body during his ministry. So just borrowing the body. And then left him prior to his death, inspiring his teachings and miracles, but avoiding the suffering in its aftermath. Now there are also Christians who believe that Jesus' death brought about the salvation of the world. There were yet also Christians who believed that he never died. How could some of these views even be considered a Christian? Or to put the question differently, how could people who considered themselves as Christian hold such diverse views? Why did they not consult their scriptures to see, to see that they were not 365 gods, or that the one true God had created the world, or that Jesus Christ had in fact died? Why didn't they just go and read the New Testament? Why? It's because the New Testament didn't exist yet. And to be sure, the books that were eventually collected into the New Testament had been written in the second century, but they had not yet been gathered into a widely recognized and authoritative canon of Scripture at this point. And there were several other books written as well with equally impressive pedigrees, other Gospels, other Acts, other Epistles, and other Apocalypses claiming to be written by the early Apostles of Jesus Christ himself. Why were they not included? Why were there so many different diverging sects of Christianity, all believing in such different amazing things than what we get in the canon? These are questions that we're going to ask ourselves and this is what we're going to look for. 
Now, those Gospels that we talked about that actually came to be included in the New Testament were all written anonymously. We've already discussed that in depth, right? Though only at a later time were they called by the names of their reputed authors. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. But about the time that these names were being associated or assigned with these Gospels, other Gospel books were also becoming available. Sacred texts that were read and revered by different Christian groups throughout the world. A Gospel, for example, claiming to be written by Jesus' closest disciple, Simon Peter. Another by his apostle, Philip. A Gospel allegedly written by Jesus' female disciple, Mary Magdalene. Another by his own twin brother, Didymus, Judas Thomas. So someone decided that four of these early Gospels, and none of the others, should be accepted as part of the canon. The collection of sacred books of Scripture. But how did they make their decisions? And when? How could it be sure that they weren't right? About the stories that they tell, why were they left out? And whatever happened to all these books, where did they go? Why aren't they on full display? Why, why, aren't they in? Why, why aren't they included in the Bible that we have today? Now, when the New Testament was finally gathered together, it included Acts and an account of activities of the disciples after Jesus' death. But there were other Acts written in the early years of the church as well. The Acts of Peter and John, the Acts of Paul, the Acts of, of Paul's female companion, Thelka, and many others. Why were these not included as part of their sacred scripture? So, the New Testament that we have today contains a number of epistles, letters written by Christian leaders to other Christians, and then 13 allegedly by Paul, but we know that really only seven of them can be contributed with authenticity. But there are other letters that are not in the New Testament that also claim to be written by Paul. For example, there are several letters that were sent by Paul to the Roman philosopher Seneca. And there's also a letter that's written to the church of Laodicea. And Paul's third Corinthians, not just one and two. So moreover, there were letters written in the names of other apostles as well, including one allegedly written by Simon Peter to Jesus' brother James, and another by Paul's companion Barnabas. Why were these all excluded? Then the New Testament concludes with an apocalypse, right? A revelation concerning the end of the world and the cataclysmic act of God that we just recently reviewed together a couple episodes ago. Written by someone named John, John of Patmos to be exact is what he says actually in the book of Revelation, but it was brought and added to the New Testament only after the Christian leaders of the time became convinced that the author had to have been that of John, the son of Zebedee. Jesus' own disciple, even though the author in the book never claims to be that particular John. But why were these other apocalypses not included into the canon? Such as the apocalypse allegedly written by Simon Peter, in which he, in which he is given a guided tour of heaven and hell to see the glorious ecstasies of the saints, and described in yet more graphic detail the horrendous torments of the damned. Or the book that was very popular among Christian readers of the second century, The Shepherd of Hermas, which, like the book of Revelation, is filled with apocalyptic visions of a prophet. But we know at one time or another, in one place or another, all of these non-canonical books and many others were in fact revered as extremely sacred, 
inspired, special, scriptural. Some of them we now have, and others we only know by name. Only 27 of the early Christian books were finally included into the canon, copied by scribes through the ages, eventually translated into English, and now on bookshelves in virtually every single home in America, as well as the entire world. Other books came to be rejected, scorned, maligned, attacked, burned, all but forgotten, buried, lost, or perhaps hidden. So from this point, it may be worth reflecting on what was both lost as well as gained when these books and these Christian perspectives that they represented disappeared altogether from sight. And one thing that was lost, of course, was the great diversity of the early centuries of Christianity. So as already pointed out earlier, modern Christianity is not lacking in diversity of its own, with its wide-ranging theologies and liturgies and practices and interpretations of scripture, and political views of the mentioned, as well as social stands and organizations and institutions and so on and so forth. But virtually all forms of modern Christianity, whether they acknowledge it or not, go back to one form of Christianity that emerged as victorious from the conflicts of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Now, this one form of Christianity decided that it was the correct Christian perspective. It was the right Christianity. And it decided who could exercise authority over Christian belief and practice, and it also determined what forms of Christianity would be marginalized, set aside, and even destroyed. It also decided which books to canonize into scripture and which books to set aside and deem as heretical and the teachings of false ideas. And then in one fell swoop, this victorious party rewrote the history of the controversy, making it appear that there had never been a conflict at all, claiming that its own views had always been the views of the majority of Christians at all times back to the times of Jesus and his apostles, that its perspective, in effect, had always been the orthodox view, or the right view, the right belief, and that its opponents in the conflict with their own scriptural text had always represented a small splinter group invested in deceiving people into heresy. What Christianity gained at the end of these early conflicts was a sense of confidence, right? that it had always been the right religion. It, was, it had always been the right version of Christianity. And it also gained a creed, which is still recited by Christians today, that affirmed the right beliefs as opposed to the heretical wrong ones. And then relatedly, it gained a theology, including a view that Christ is both fully divine and fully human and a doctrine of the Trinity which maintained that the Godhead consists of three persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, distinct in number but equal in substance. Additionally, it gained a hierarchy of church leaders who could run the church and guarantee its adherence to proper belief and those practices of the right religious cult. And it also gained a canon of Scripture, what would be the New Testament, comprising of 27 books that supported these leaders' vision of the church and their understanding of doctrine, the ethics, 
and how to worship correctly. These gains are obviously significant and relatively well known. Less familiar are the losses incurred when these particular conflicts came to an end. But it's striking that for centuries, literally hundreds of years, virtually everyone who studied the history of early Christianity simply accepted the version of the early conflicts that were written by the Orthodox victors. However, this all began to change in a very significant way. Sometime in the 19th century, as some scholars began to question objectively of such early Christian writers, such as the 4th century Orthodox author Eusebius. Do you guys remember him from previous episodes? He is the so-called father of church history, who reproduced for us the earliest accounts of these conflicts. He also is the forger of the mentioning of Christ, his crucifixion under Pilate, and Jesus' brother James, and Josephus' works, Antiquities. Do you remember that? So I don't know how much I would trust this guy. Anyway, this initial query into Eusebius' accuracy and truth-telling eventually became, in some circles, a virtual attack on his character as 20th century scholars began to subject his work to an ideological critique that exposed his biases and the role in his writings. In fact, the reevaluation of Eusebius was prompted in part by the discovery of ancient books, uncovered both by trained eyes of an archaeologist looking for them, as well as by Bedouin, which is basically nomadic Arabs in the desert, who came across them by chance, simply an accident. Other Gospels, for example, that also claim to be written in the name of apostles. So one has to ask, if this particular sect of Christianity, as we know it today, didn't win one of the other sects over, things would be very different today in what Christians around the world believe and hold dearly as true. Eventually, the proto-Orthodox Christians, the winning sectarian group of Christians, accepted the four Gospels that eventually became part of the New Testament canon and viewed all other Gospels as heretical forgeries. Why? Because they were told so. As the famous theologian of the early and mid-third century, Origen of Alexandria, claimed, the church has four gospels, but the heretics have many. And then he goes on to list several of them, several heretical gospels that he has claimed to have read. The gospel according to the Egyptians, the gospel according to the Twelve Apostles, the gospel of Basilides, and the gospel according to Thomas, and the Gospel according to Matthias. Now, unfortunately, we know almost nothing about the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles and of Basilides. Now, Basilides is basically a famous second century Gnostic heretic. Now, the Gospels of the Egyptian and Matthias are only known through a few quotations by Origen's older contemporary, Clement of Alexandria. And these quotations give us a sense of what we might have lost when these texts ultimately disappeared, or were stolen, or were burned, destroyed, or hidden. Now, the Gospel of the Egyptians apparently opposed the notion of procreative sex, because in one passage, a female follower of Jesus, Salome, known slightly from the New Testament Gospel of Mark in 16.1, basically says to Jesus, Then I have done well in not giving birth, to which Jesus is said to reply, Eat of every herb, but do not eat of the one that is bitter. 
and at an earlier point he is said to have declared, I have come to undo the works of the female. So the gospel according to Matthias may have been an even more mystical affair, because at one point Clement quotes two intriguing words, wonder at the things that are before you, making this the first step to further knowledge. Now, the other gospel that Origen mentions, the Gospel of Thomas, has been discovered in its entirety in modern times. And it's arguably the single most important Christian archaeological discovery of the 20th century. It is fascinating. It's an incredible document, the subject of an extensive modern literature. Now, Clement and Origen were both not alone in acknowledging the existence of these other gospels and assigning them as heretical forgeries. The early 4th century church father Eusebius also mentions the Gospel of Thomas and Matthias, along with the Gospel according to the Hebrews, and the Gospel Peter of Peter. The last named is of particular interest, because Eusebius gives an extended account for how it was used, questioned, and eventually condemned as heretical by proto-Orthodox leaders to be relegated to the trash heaps of discarded Gospels. But then it turned up again, but not in a trash heap, but in the tomb of an Egyptian monk discovered over a hundred years ago. Now, prior to discovery, everything we knew about the Gospel of Peter actually came from Eusebius's account in his 10-volume church history. So in this church history, Eusebius narrates the history of the Christian church from the days of Jesus all the way down to his own time, in the early fourth century, that is. So this writing Eusebius' writing is our best source for the history of Christianity after the period of the New Testament, to the time of the Emperor Constantine, who in fact was the first Roman Emperor to actually convert to Christianity, which was a business transaction, by the way, don't misunderstand. But the work is filled with antidotes and, of yet greater use to historians, extensive quotations of earlier Christian writings. And in many instances, Eusebius' quotations are our only source of knowledge of Christian texts from the 2nd and the 3rd centuries. So the account that we're interested in here concerns Serapion, who is basically a proto-Orthodox bishop of Antioch in Syria, and one of the major, one of the most major hubs of Christian activity in the early centuries, and his encounter with the Gospel of Peter. Now, Serapion had become bishop in the year 199 of the Common Era. And under his jurisdiction were not just the churches of Antioch, but also the Christian communities in the surrounding area, including the one in the town called Rosas, R-H-O-S-S-U-S. Now, Serapion had made a visit to this Christian church of, of Rosas, trying in good proto-Orthodox fashion to correct their misconceptions about the true gospel message. But while he was there, he learned that the church of Rosas used as its sacred text a gospel allegedly written by none of the other, Simon Peter. But not knowing the character of the book, but assuming that it must be acceptable if Peter himself had written it, so Serapion allowed it to be used prior to returning home to Antioch. But some informers came forward to cast doubt on the authenticity of the book and requesting that he would read it for himself. But when he did so, he realized that the gospel was susceptible to heretical mis mis misconception. Specifically, that some of the passages found in it could be used in support of a docetic Christology.
docetic. That's going to word that we need to talk about. That followed the same ideas about Jesus as in the ascension of Isaiah. A phantasm or, or a cosmic messiah, not an earthly one. So what is docetism? Docetism was an ancient belief that, very early on, came to be prescribed as heretical by proto-Orthodox Christians. Why? Because it denied the reality of Christ's suffering and his death. Two forms of the belief were widely known. According to some Docetists, Christ was so completely divine that he could not be human at all. And as God, he could not possibly have a human body like the rest of us. As divine, he could not actually suffer and not actually die at all. This, then, was the view that Jesus was not really a flesh-and-blood human, but only appeared to be so. So for those Docetists, Jesus' body was, in fact, considered a phantasm. There were other Christians charged with being Docetists, or Docetic, who took on a slightly different tack. For them, Jesus was real flesh and blood, like a human, but Christ was a separate person altogether. A divine being who, as God, could not experience the pain and death. But in this view, the divine Christ descended from heaven in the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism and then entered into him. Then the divine Christ then empowered Jesus to perform miracles and deliver spectacular teachings. Until the end when, before Jesus died, since the divine cannot die, the Christ left him once more. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As seen in Mark 15, 34. Or as it can literally be translated, Why have you left me behind? For these Christians, God had left Jesus behind by reascending to heaven, leaving the man Jesus behind to die on the cross. So as you can imagine, for proto-Orthodox Christians, both forms of Docetism were strictly forbidden and off-limits. So with regards to the first, Jesus as the phantasm, they ask if Jesus did not have a real body, well, how could he really die? And if he did not die, how could his death bring salvation? And so if he did not have real blood, how could he shed his blood for the sins of the world? Now with regards to the second view, Jesus and Christ being two separate individuals altogether, they ask, if the divine element in Jesus did not suffer and die, how was his death any different from any other crucified man? And how could his death be redemptive? It might be a, a miscarriage of justice, perhaps or just a, a bad end to a good man. But it would be of no real relevance to the plan of God for salvation. And so proto-Orthodox Christians denounced both kinds of docetism as heresy and fought them with all their might until they finally extinguished them, right? So it was not just their lives that were at stake, but their eternal lives, the salvation of their soul. So when Serapion read the Gospel of Peter for the first time himself, he realized that it could be used in support of a docetic Christology. And so he wrote a little pamphlet the so-called Gospel of Peter, in which he explains the problems of the text, pointing out that whereas most of the Gospel was theologically acceptable, there were additions to the Gospel story that could be used in support of a docetic view. So Serapion concluded that because the book was potentially heretical, it must not have been written by the Peter. 
operating on the dubious assumption that if a text disagreed with the truth, as he and his fellow proto-Orthodox Christians saw it, then it could not possibly be apostolic. So Serapion then penned a letter to the Christians of Rosas, in which he forbade any further use of the gospel and appended his pamphlet detailing the problems in the passage. So Eusebius narrates the tale and quotes the letter, but he does not actually cite the passage itself. Now, the discovery of the Gospel of Peter, it was an amazing find, guys. And the text was forgotten for centuries, known only from Eusebius' brief accounts of it. But that changed dramatically during an archaeological excavation that was conducted by a French team operating out of Cairo. And they were basically digging in Upper Egypt in the town of Akmem. And this is during the winter of 1886 and 1887. So under the direction of M. Grebent, the team uncovered the tomb of a monk in the Christian section of the town cemetery. And the tomb, the tomb could date anywhere from either the 12th centuries or perhaps even the 11th centuries. But what was of the greatest significance of this find, however, was not the tomb itself, but what was buried inside of it, alongside with the monk. Now, the monk had been buried with a manuscript, and the manuscript probably dates to the 7th or even the 8th century. And it's reasonable to assume that it was the cherished property of the monk, i.e. to be buried alongside him, for example. But it is an intriguing document, 66 pages in length altogether, and written on parchment paper. And it contains fragmentary remains of several apocalyptic texts. Not all of them Christian, but all of them extremely significant. Now, the first step, and there are the first text, excuse me, on page 2 through 10, pages 1 contains just basically the drawing of a cross. And it's a portion of the Gospel of Peter. And then next on page 13 through 19, sewn into the book upside down, accidentally, um, some of these archaeologists believe, is a fragmentary copy of the Apocalypse of Peter, an intriguing account now known more fully from the ancient Ethiopian um, translation, in which Peter is shown the glorious afterlives of the saints and the eternal torments for the sinners that we talked about before. Then there are two passages that are taken from the Jewish apocryphal book known as One Enoch, which is an account known more fully from other sources of Revelation supposedly delivered to Enoch, the famous figure from the Hebrew Bible, who did not die but was taken alive up to heaven as seen in Genesis 5, 21-24. Then finally, there is a fragmentary text of the Acts of St. Julian. Now, this was no doubt a remarkable find, because not just for its silent and completely unexpected testimony in a microcosm of Christian unity and diversity and tolerance and intolerance, but here was a medieval monk buried with some proscribed books, an array of texts, they were both Jewish and Christian, both orthodox and heretical. And yet, the manuscripts contain the Apocalypse of Peter, whose author condemns to the fires of hell anyone who disagrees with his view of how to behave. And this included women who braid their hair to make themselves more attractive, or anyone who disobeys their parents, and bankers who lend money out at interest. And the Gospel of Peter which is absolutely intolerant of Jews, who are portrayed as anonymous and responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And then itself, 
is condemned to oblivion by intolerant Christian leaders who objected to its theological views. Now, it is absolutely really regrettable and unfortunate that the manuscript presents only a fragment of the Gospel of Peter. Not that the document in the monk's tomb itself is fragmentary, it's actually complete. But the first line of the Gospel text begins after that image we talked about of the cross. In mid-sentence, it also ends. And prior to two blank pages in mid-sentence, so whoever copied this gospel in the 7th or that 8th century, there had to have been before him only a fragment, which he transcribed into this small anthology, along with other fragmentary texts that were available to him. So the surviving fragments of the gospel, it contains an account of Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, and the resurrection. So it is impossible to know whether the book originally contained more than that or not, or whether, for example, it was a complete gospel like those in the New Testament, which begin with either Jesus' baptism, which we only see in Mark and John, or his birth, which we only see in Matthew and Luke, and contains accounts of his sayings and deeds along with a narrative of his passion and resurrection. Now, scholars typically assume that the Gospel of Peter originally contained more than the Passion and Resurrection narratives that survived in the Achman fragments, that it was a fuller account, like the New Testament Gospels. That is, that it contained stories from Jesus' public ministry as well. This is because several tiny fragments of Jesus' sayings have been discovered elsewhere in Egypt, which may have derived from this particular Gospel. Now, these other fragments contain conversations between Jesus and Peter that recorded in the first person, and conversations not found in the fragments of the gospel that was discovered in the monk's tomb. But in any event, the gospel fragments that we have, it begins with the following words, and I will quote. Begin quote. But none of the Jews washed his hands, nor did Herod or any of his judges. Since they did not wish to wash, Pilate stood up. Now, this is both a significant and an interesting beginning for two reasons. One, it shows that just before the fragment begins, the gospel contains a new account of Pilate washing his hands after killing Jesus, a story that's only found in the New Testament in Matthew, in Matthew 27, 24 to be exact. Yet it displays a marked difference from the account in Matthew, because in Matthew that we have, which says not a single word about anyone refusing to wash their hands, so, in the Gospel of Peter, Herod, the king of the Jews, and the Jewish judges, unlike the Roman governor Pilate, refused to declare themselves innocent of Jesus' blood. So, this suggests an important aspect for the rest of the account. For here, it's not the Romans who are responsible for Jesus' death. It is the Jews. This fragmentary gospel is far more anti-Jewish than any of those that made it into the New Testament. This intimation of an anti-Jewish slant is confirmed in the very next verse. And I begin, quote, Then King Herod ordered the Lord to be taken away and said to them, Do everything that I ordered you to do to him. So here we have something very interesting, right? We have the Jewish king, not the Roman governor, who orders Jesus' death. Then the narrative continues with the request of Joseph of Arimathea for Jesus' body, the mockery of Jesus and his crucifixion. But these accounts, they're both like and unlike what we read in the canonical Gospels. Now, for example, 
In this gospel, Jesus is said to be crucified between two criminals, just like we'd get in the other gospels, right? But here we find an unusual statement that he was silent as if he had no pain. And this last statement could well be taken in a docetic way. Perhaps Jesus appeared to have no pain because he did not have any. Whether the author meant it to be taken that way or not is another matter on its own. But some scholars have seen this as supporting evidence that this fragment is from the heretical gospel known to Serapion. And then further confirmation may come several verses later when Jesus is about to die and he utters his cry of dereliction in words very similar to, but not identical with, those found in Mark's account. But here he says, My power, O power, you have left me. And that is in Mark 15, 34. But he is then said to be taken up, even though his body, re body remains on the cross. Is Jesus here uh, bemoaning the departure of the divine Christ from him prior to his death? The view as we see it, this is the docetic Christianity. And then there's another interesting feature that's found in this gospel's account of Jesus' crucifixion. And it's in the Gospel of Luke. Only one of the two criminals has something disparaging to say. And he says it, however, not to Jesus, but to the soldier who was crucifying him. He tells him that he and the other criminals have deserved the punishment that they're receiving. But he asks, in quotation, This one, the Savior of the people, what wrong has he done to you? So angered by the rebuke, the soldier orders that his legs not be broken so that he would die in torment. And then after Jesus dies, the account continues by describing his burial and then in the first person, the distress of the disciples. So we, in quotation, we fasted and we sat mourning and weeping, night and day until Sabbath. Now, as in Matthew's gospel, the Jewish leaders ask Pilate for soldiers to guard the tomb. In Matthew 27, 62 to 66. Now this gospel, however, it provides more elaborate details because the centurion who is in charge is named Petronius, who, along with a number of other soldiers, rolls a huge stone in front of the tomb and seals it with seven seals on the, on the, on the stone, right? So they can make sure that the seals weren't broken, that he actually didn't get away. Then they pitch their tent and they stand guard. Then comes perhaps the most striking passage found in the narrative, an actual account of Jesus' resurrection and emergence from the tomb, found in none of the other early Gospels, of course. And then a crowd has come from Jerusalem and the surrounding area to see the tomb. But during the night hours, they hear a great noise and they see the heavens open up. Two men descend in great splendor. And the stone before the tomb simply rolls away on its own when these two guys land. And the two men enter the tomb. The soldiers who were standing guard awaken the, the centurion, who comes out to witness this incredible spectacle, of course. And then from the tomb, there emerge three men. The heads of two of them reach up to the sky. And they are supporting the third, whose head reaches up beyond the skies. Behind them emerges an enormous, imagine it, a ginormous cross. <laughs> and a voice then speaks from the heaven, and in quotation, Have you preached to those who are asleep? And then the cross replies, Yes. End quote. Then the soldiers run back to Pilate, and they tell him everything that they just witnessed. 
the big cross coming out of the tomb and what have you. The Jewish leaders then beg him to keep the story quiet for the fear that they will be stoned to death once the Jewish people realize what they have done in terms of putting Jesus to death. And then Pilate commands the soldiers to silence. But only after reminding those Jewish leaders that Jesus' crucifixion was indeed their fault, not his. Very clear. Then the next day at dawn, not knowing what has happened, Mary Magdalene goes out with several other women, these other, several other women companions, and they go to the tomb to provide a more adequate burial for Jesus' body. But the tomb is empty except for a heavenly visitor who tells her that the Lord has risen and gone. The manuscript then ends abruptly in the middle of the story that apparently started to describe Jesus' appearance to some of his disciples, perhaps similar to that found in John 21, 1-14. But I, Simon Peter, and Andrew, my brother, took our nets and went off to sea, and with us was Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who the Lord... And then it just stops. So... It is the ending which shows that the author is indeed trying to pass himself off as Jesus' very own disciple, right? And to the good Christians of Rosas, this was their true and sacred and cherished gospel. However, this account was probably written after the canonical gospels and perhaps even after Peter had died. So as we know, Mark was written sometime you know, between that 76 to 80, and then Matthew sometime around 85 to 90, Luke and John sometime around 95 to 110, even possibly 120. But this lost gospel, this lost and hidden gospel was probably written at the end of the first century, using all previous gospels as a source, such as the descending gospels did with each other's accounts. Now, one of the major reasons that we know and understand that this Gospel of Peter was, in fact, written after the four canonical accounts, it involves the treatment of Jews in this narrative. The kind of heightened anti-Judaism here actually corresponds with the views that were developing in Christian circles in the second century, which was basically a period in which Christian anti-Judaism began to assert itself with particular vigor. One byproduct of this increased animosity is that Christians began to exonerate Pilate for Jesus' death and started blaming Jews. But not just these elite Jews, all Jews, more and more, and especially over time. It's rather illuminating to trace the treatment of Pilate versus Jews through our surviving Gospels. The more he is excused, the more Jews are blamed. So I'll give you an example. Take a look at our earliest account, Mark, who writes after 76 of the Common Era, right? Sometime after Josephus releases his Wars of the Jews. And then give this author for Mark a couple of years to read it and then write his narrative, right? So basically, Mark shows Pilate and the Jewish people reaching some kind of an agreement to have Jesus crucified. And then Pilate then you know, subsequently orders it, and Jesus is then taken off immediately to his death. In Mark 15, 1 through 15. But now in Matthew's account, who writes sometime probably five years later, we'll call it right, right around 85 of the common era. So he basically, Pilate is actually warned by his wife, who has had a bad dream about it, not to get involved in the particular affair. And then Pilate shows that he wants nothing to do with Jesus' death by washing his hands of the business. 
I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself, he declared. The Jewish crowd then obviously responds, His blood be on us and our children. See that in Matthew 27-25. This response ultimately doomed and wreaked havoc by the hands of Christian persecutors of Jews all the way throughout the Middle Ages and even into the 20th century. But it is also completely consistent with the views that were developing in early Christianity. If Pilate is innocent, then the Jews themselves are responsible for killing their own Messiah. Matthew 27, 11-26. Now in Luke's account, written sometime after Matthew, and probably in the late 80s, early 90s of the Common Era, he has Pilate declared that Jesus is innocent not once, not twice, but three times. But to no avail, right? And then tries to arrange for King Herod, who was in town for the Passover feast, to do the dirty work for him. But once again, it's to no avail. With very little way out, Luke has Pilate yield to the demands of the Jewish leaders and orders Jesus to be crucified on the cross. Luke 23, 1-15. And then last but not least, in John's narrative, who writes, obviously we talked about this, probably in the late 90s, early 2nd century, who is the final account to be canonized, has Pilate also declared that Jesus is innocent three times. And then finally, when his hands are forced, he ends up turning Jesus over, not, however, to the Roman soldiers, but to the Jewish leaders instead. Jesus is then crucified at the hands of the Jews. John puts the final nail into the Jewish coffin. John chapter 18, verses 28, all the way through chapter 19, verse 16. Additionally, in this somewhat late Gospel of Peter, where the Jewish culpability is super heightened, where this author simply decides to take it even further by having his pilot take a back seat to both the Jewish king Herod and to the Jewish people. So he decides to have Herod order the execution and then the Jewish people who take full responsibility for what they have done. And then in quote, Then the Jews... The elders and the priest realized how much evil they had done to themselves and began beating their breasts, saying, Woe to us because of our sins. The judgment and the end of Jerusalem are near. So that's basically what we see in uh, this Gospel of Peter, obviously. So it's interesting, and it's worth noting, that it was in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries that Christians started to begin blaming the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies in 70 on the Jews themselves. No, not for a foolish uprising against the power of Rome, but for killing Christ, whose death was avenged by the destruction of the city and the slaughter of its inhabitants. So we have seen a number of intriguing features found in the Gospel of Peter and its similarities to that of the New Testament Gospel accounts of Jesus' death. From its legendary myths, its blatant anti-Judaism, its potential docetic character and nature, its suppression by the proto-Orthodox bishop Serapion, and its importance to the Christians of Rosas. But was the Gospel of Peter merely just a local production? forged right there on site by the local people, with limited impact on the rest of Christendom, 
It was virtually unknown until found a hundred years ago by the French archaeologist that just happened to find it, hiding inside of a Christian monk's tomb. Regardless, there are many indications that the Gospel of Peter was very popular in the early church. Arguably, at least as popular as one of the Gospels that did in fact make it into the New Testament, such as the Gospel of Mark. The archaeological finds of early Christian manuscripts bear out the conclusion that the Gospel of Mark was in fact not widely read throughout congregations. Over the past hundred years or so, numerous fragmentary copies of ancient Christian writings have turned up, principally in the sands of Egypt, where the consistently dry climate makes preservation possible over centuries upon centuries. But the earliest manuscripts of early Christian literature were written, as was most literature, pagan, Jewish, and Christian, all on writing material that was manufactured from papyrus, which is basically a reed that grows along the banks of the Nile and can be made into a very nice writing surface resembling coarse paper. But since the 1880s, at least 30 manuscripts of the New Testament Gospels have been discovered that date from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, just like these. And most of them contain only one or of the other Gospels, as these books were originally circulated separately, not as a collection. And of these 30 fragmentary Gospel manuscripts, only one contains the Gospel of Mark. Now again, you have to remember, all these Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, Peter, all, all, all these different ones, whether they were considered heretical or not, were all being circulated independently throughout different regions, not collectively as a book. Now, in contrast, from the same exact period that we're talking about, there are five partial, unidentified Gospels that have been discovered as well. And these are texts that provide accounts of Jesus' words and his deeds, but are too fragmentary to establish which Gospel they actually belong to, except to say that they did not belong to any Gospel that we're actually aware of by name. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Additionally, there were three fragmentary copies of the Gospel of Thomas, allegedly written by Jesus' twin brother. I didn't even know he had one. And his name is Didymus Judas Thomas. And there are two fragmentary copies of a Gospel allegedly written by Mary Magdalene as well, in which she reveals the secrets that Jesus had given to her as his closest companion. And then from the same period, we also have another three fragmentary copies of the Gospel of Peter, not counting the one in the monk's tomb that we just discussed. And so with all of that said, it's an interesting question that we must ask ourselves. Which Gospel was more popular in the early Christian movement? Was it Mark that got canonized? Or was it Peter, the one found in the monk's tomb? because it's really difficult to really nail it down and say conclusively. But if the material remains that we have are of any gauge at all, one would have to give a thumbs up to Peter, because it has three times as many surviving manuscripts that remains from Mark. So these three fragments of the Gospel of Peter, they are small, and one of them consists of just seven partial lines. But the fragments taken as a whole have a significance that transcends over their size. 
One of them appears to have come from a second century or perhaps even early third century copy that contained the same account of Joseph of Arimathea asking for Jesus' body that is found in the larger copy discovered in the monk's tomb. Now, this is really significant because it shows us that the later 7th or even 8th century copy may faithfully represent the texts that are found in Serapion's day. And then there are two other fragments that come from other portions of the gospel, and there are debates about whether they stem from the same gospel of Peter or perhaps a different one altogether. It's hard to know, because the credit card size fragment contains so little text, it's hard to make a decision, making their reconstruction extremely complicated for these guys. You have to imagine that, right? But both of them appear to represent a conversation that takes place between Peter and Jesus, in which Peter speaks as if he's in the first person. The first, the one with only seven partial lines, has Jesus predicting that all the disciples, including Peter, will betray him. This would be then the familiar account of the Last Supper, but told by Peter himself. Now, the second one contains a saying that's not found in the canonical Gospels at all, but only known to scholars of Christian antiquity from other surviving texts and other surviving documents and one called To Clement, which is basically, it's a proto-Orthodox document of the mid-2nd century, which nonetheless, it records a rather peculiar interchange that takes place between Jesus and Peter. So according to To Clement, the conversation went like this. And I begin the quote. For the Lord said, you will be like sheep in the midst of wolves. But Peter replied to him, but what if the wolves rip apart the sheep? Jesus said to Peter, after they are dead, the sheep would fear the wolves no longer. So to you, do not fear those who kill you and then can do nothing more to you, but fear the one after you die, who has the power to cast your body and soul into hell of fire? And anyway, end quote. You can find that in 2 Clement, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Now, the fragment of the Gospel of Peter that I'm concerned about with here was published recently, actually, just in 1994. And it contains a similar account, but with two major differences. For one thing, here the words of Jesus are given in a broader context. It begins with Jesus telling his disciples that they are to be as innocent as doves, but as wise as a serpent, and that they will be like sheep among wolves. And then they respond quite sensibly, one might think, but what if we are ripped apart? I probably would have asked the same question myself. <laughs> but then comes the second difference. And Jesus replied to me, what follows is the saying that dead sheep have nothing to fear from the wolves, but they should fear me because I can cast them into hell and yada, 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 yada. So since in the version of To Clement, this is a response to Peter. But in this fragment, it is a response to someone speaking as in the first person. And it seems likely that the fragment comes from a gospel in which the author is speaking in the name of Peter himself as in the larger text um, discovered in the monk's tomb. Now, it's not completely clear where the anonymous author of to Clement derived his knowledge of this conversation from, but since it is not from any other gospel that we have or are aware of, 
Possibly he too had read the Gospel of Peter and also accepted it as authoritative account of Jesus' words. So this initial look into Christian Apocrypha of the second century shows that Christians were in fact reading other far more sacred literature than one might actually think or could even conceive of. They were not only reading the books that eventually made it into the New Testament canon, but there is no way of knowing whether during the time of Serapion of Antioch, you know, at the end of the second century, if the Christians of Rufus ever had even heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at all. Were those Gospels not in circulation outside of the Christian hub in Rome? Were those canonized gospel narratives forced over the others for political and perhaps reasons for power? Their gospel was the gospel of Peter, until the bishop asserted his authority and banned its use, condemned it, called it heretical. Whether he was successful in doing so or not, in the short run, is something that we will never know, unfortunately. But what we can know is that the gospel was being read, not just in Syria, but also in Egypt, possibly at an earlier stage as well, since the papyrus that we have contains are roughly contemporary with Serapion's time. And it's more widely attested than even some of our canonical books, including the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we know that Christians were reading several other texts as well at the very same time. Some were even reading the Acts of Pontius Pilate, which is an, an account that goes on to describe the trial of Jesus, but with much fuller fashion and color than the surviving fragments of the Gospel of Peter, that goes on to show the guilt of the Jews and the superiority of Jesus over anything else pagan. And in this account, which is referred to by the second century author Justin Martyr, the images of Roman gods bow down to Jesus when he enters the room. At a later date, this account was combined with detailed description of Christ's descent into Hades, which took place between his death and his resurrection to form what is now known as the Gospel of Nicodemus. So had Tertullian, the second century Christian author, had he read any of these early versions of any of this material? Well, he certainly had read some versions of the letter that Pilate had supposedly written back to the Roman emperor proclaiming Jesus' innocence and his divinity. But as we saw from the outset, his contemporary origin, remember him? He had read yet other Gospels, those according to the Egyptians, the Twelve Apostles, Matthias, Basilides, and Thomas. And we know of Apocalypses being read as well, including the Apocalypse of Peter that we covered just a few handful of episodes ago. But what else might early Christians have been reading as scripture? Lots of texts. Most of them proscribed, burned, lost, buried, hidden for safekeeping. Some of them have been recently found, though, if only in small fragments. What we would give for a complete copy of Peter's gospel, or, or the stories written about Pontius Pilate, or the Gospels or Apocalypses that we know only by name. But only a few of these early Christian writings managed to survive the proscriptions of their proto-Orthodox enemies, sometimes circulating in clandestine copies in the Middle Ages, occasionally being quoted, quoted by this or by that church father for reasons of his own, 
or her own, guessing his own. And in those rare moments of genuine discovery, sometimes turning up in the sands of Egypt, only to be uncovered by trained archaeologists who are digging through ancient garbage heaps of ancient cities, or stumbled upon by accident by roaming desert Arabs, just going about their business and serendipitously unearthing lost treasures that can tell us something about the lost Christian heresies of long ago. So I think this is a pretty good place to bring this episode to a close. And this is part one of probably a four-part series, very similar to what I had to do with um, Josephus and the Wars of the Jews story um, or episode. But I think you guys kind of get it. And this episode um, definitely teed it up and probably giving you guys a lot of information that you either knew about or probably didn't know about. But first, second, third century, man, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not the only scriptures and gospels that were in circulation at the time, or apocalypses, or acts, right? There were other pieces of literature that were held near and dear to the hearts of these other congregations that were spread out throughout Egypt and Syria and Africa and many other places. And then this one sectarian group that we call Proto-Orthodox Christianity, how did it reach supremacy? How did it do it? This particular group of Christians with the hub literally in Rome. It kind of ties it all together, doesn't it? With everything else that we've talked about. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to coming back next week with continuing on with the same story in part two. So everybody, have a great weekend. So this is this is Friday and um, California and it's still hot as Satan's balls, baby. Anyway, peace out. Love y'all. Ciao, bellos and bellas. This is a Skeptical Ghost Heathen production.